every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People, a post-mortem podcast on the works of Joss Whedon. Uh, with me this week, Stacy Abbott. I believe all this information is still true. I'm going to run through this and you can correct me after the fact. So uh, you are still a lecturer in film and television studies at Roehampton University. Yes, okay. that is true. You remain the editor of Reading Angel, the TV spinoff with a soul. Yes. Okay. I assume that hasn't changed. Uh, and you are still the author of uh, Celluloid Vampire's Life After Death in the Modern World and Near Dark from the BFI Film Classics. Yes. That okay. is all me. That, that is all me. you. Guilty as charged. Also, I don't know what... It's just called Angel? Yeah, Angel TV Milestone. TV Milestone. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's hard it's, to read it, on the it, bottom of it. Well, I think it's because it's part of the series, so it's it's. Uh, I always distinguish it, so I say Angel TV Milestone. Otherwise, right. just so people know what series right. it's in. Anyways, so welcome back, Stacy. Thank you, thank you for having me back. Um, I mean, I love all my guests, but I feel like you need to be the co-chair of every episode of Angel, <laughs> since you are the the mother of Angel studies, in my opinion. <laughs> Thank you. Thank um, you. Yeah. So it's always good to have you on here. And uh, we were talking off mic that uh, I don't think I have you scribbled in for any future episodes, but damn it, you will. I will. I will have you <laughs> future episodes. I will. I will definitely be there. I'm really glad to be back. So thanks for having me back. And I'm looking forward and I will definitely happy to partake of future episodes. Okay. Excellent. Well, I will try not to drive you off with whatever we talk about this week. Um, what are we talking about this week? This week we're looking at three episodes. Uh, we are looking at episodes 113, She, 114, I've Got You Under My Skin, and 115, The Prodigal. Um, mm -hmm. And I've there's there's been a little bit of buildup to this particular discussion over the course of my previous episodes because a lot of people, myself included consider at least one of these three episodes to be sort of the low point, sort of the yeah. nadir of Angel season one, possibly of Angel the series. Uh, we'll find out if yeah. that opinion has changed for me, at least uh, upon this reviewing. But um, I'll kick off with you and ask you how you feel about these. Well, I think that these episodes are, um, to me, they are, a, they're a mixed bag that they are a classic first season trying to find its feet. And I think they have strengths and weaknesses. I always have to say, you know, my perspective may not be typical to everyone because I've written a lot about Angel. I've watched these a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've watched, you know, probably more than most people. So 
I tend to find the more one watches it, the more one always finds, like you may respond initially, like I don't like that, it's not very good or it feels weak. But the more I watch it, the more I go, well, there's 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 something of value in everything. Um, it's not always the case, but I find with these, there are things I like about them. I think there are weaknesses. I think mm-hmm. there's stuff to talk about. But I, I also think this is the point in the series where they're trying to work at, they're still trying to work out what they're doing with this show. But I think... As everyone knows, I'm a very vocal Wesley fan. Um, And I think there's a lot that we're starting to see just, you know, we're starting to see a little bit of Wesley come, you know, emerging here. You know, there's a bit more with each episode. So I I do have a fondness for these ones because of starting to get, you know, he's starting to kind of find his place in the team. Yes. Officially, as a matter of fact, because this is, he's finally officially made part of the team. But um, yeah, as will as could potentially be the case for the entire series going forward. Um, in my opinion, Wesley is sort of the high point of all three of these episodes. Um, yep. I'll probably say that in every episode <clears throat> going forward, but yeah. All right. So let's, uh, let's start with she, this originally aired uh, February 8th, 2000. I wrote 200 in my notes. That makes it a very old episode. <laughs> uh, it's a bit of a mixed bag. <laughs> right. Uh, written by Marty Noxon and David Greenwalt, directed by David Greenwalt. Um, all right. So I defer to you. What are your thoughts on this one? My thoughts are this is, I mean, this I think is the weakest of the three. Mm-hmm. It's the one. It's also, I, I think, in some respects, the most ambitious. I think they're trying to do something, and that's in a way why it doesn't work. I think they're trying to be quite ambitious. Um, they're wearing their feminist we're gonna attack the patriarchy on their sleeves Mm -hmm. and i kind of respect the desire and you can feel marty noxon bubbling around in this one um because it's dealing much more overtly with um female sexuality and sexual violence etc and themes that we know she's explored on buffy um quite a bit but I think it also, because it's being really upfront about that and really overt, I think it also um, shows its weaknesses. That I think it can be a bit clunky. <laughs> it's trying to explore those ideas, but maybe not in the most effective way. And upon rewatching it, I was struck by um, more problems I had with it, like in terms of, of what it was doing, that on first viewing, I just went, you know, wow, this is a, an episode about kind of, this demon dimension trying to control women through female genital mutilation. Yeah, you know, exactly. They're, they're, they're doing that. And you have to, I kind of went, wow, network television talking <laughs> about this. Impressive. Watching it again though. And I, and I still think that's a really impressive ambition and they're trying to talk about that. But I also think some of the ways in which they're negotiating fe- the power of female sexuality is clunky and, raised me and going really are we it, really just gonna let these men off the hook because they're in the power of you know right. under the sway of these women it is I, I, I agree the uh the instinct or the desire the intention of the episode i think was commendable i kind of had the yeah. the reverse reaction to you i don't i again as i will say many times i don't remember how many times i've rewatched angel i've rewatched angel more than i've rewatched buffy but I don't know how many times I've seen this episode, but my memory had always been of she, that it was just not good. In fact, I would say that 
I had built up in my memory that I actively hated this episode and was not looking forward to discussing it. Um, I was I was kinder to it on this revisit than I think I have been in the past. So I, I think on previous viewings I was like, oh, this is just a mess. And we can talk about Biling. I have I have good and bad yeah. things to say about Biling, uh, the actress. Yeah. But um, on this rewatch, while I still recognize how clunky it is and how sort of uh, ham-fisted it is with its metaphor, um, I don't know. I just um, I was a little more forgiving of it on this watch. But yes, the metaphor is strained and a little bit (laughs) problematic. Um, Like if you consider what... I never know how much, I mean, this is an academic discussion, so I guess the the answer is there's never too much analysis, but I never really know um, how much analysis to to sink into some of these things. Like, I guess some of the problematic aspects of the, the metaphor, the sort of female genital mutilation thing is the show, because it's a fantasy genre, like it pushes the fantasy aspects of it to the point where it suggests that the, these females sort of sexuality and sexual power is like all of their power. Like they're, they're basically completely powerless and docile and, and subjugated if they've, if they don't have their sexuality. Yeah, exactly. And that is really, you know, exactly like it's, it's, I, again, I think, and I think one of the problems is, is because of this idea that, on the one hand, we think of it as metaphor, but because they're pushing it, it's not metaphor. Like they've now pushed beyond metaphor to and, and to paraphrase Giles, you know, the subtext has become text. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, and and I think that becomes it becomes clunky as a result because you're right. Suddenly, you're just reducing these women to their sexuality, mm-hmm. and, and not and not even to their sexuality. Initially, when they come through the portal, you're reducing them to these inflamed bodies that are just giving off heat they had they're just they're just the only way they their can emotions be no emotion it's just it's all just it's just they're they're completely essentialized by their into their bodies and so they'll have to lay in these little caskets with ice and can be kept frozen until they can control themselves exactly emotional women yeah so it's really problematic and you know, so I think that is really problematic. And yet, if you kept it, if you did it as pure metaphor, if you actually didn't literalize it and said, no, we're going to do metaphor about women, female power and the men, the men localizing what they perceive as their power in uh, an aspect of their sexuality that they then generally mutilate. You go, well, that would be a metaphor. Like, you, you'd be kind of critiquing the pat- the patriarchy. Um through this demon dimension but because it just becomes too clunky because by literalizing it you are essentializing these women um which is frustrating yeah i i wonder i just had a thought and uh i want you to to course correct me if i'm (laughs) if i'm not right here but i feel like um maybe not so much in this first season but Certainly, as the series goes on and, and by the end, I feel like Angel is much less of the metaphorical series than Buffy was. I feel like a lot of stuff that Angel tackles, it tackles a lot more head on and doesn't yeah. doesn't use metaphors like no. monsters aren't always metaphors for things. 
No, I think you're right. I think it is much more we're going to confront things head on. And we're cause, because I think the demons become less metaphors for adolescents like they're on Buffy, but demons simply become a different group of people. Right. Because you're in this multicultural Los Angeles. Right. You're simply, you, you know, you're simply saying, oh, well, actually alongside, you know, multiracial or multidimensional. Yes. <laughs> You know, and, and you're just, it just becomes other groups. Like uh, you've already looked at um, Hero, we have the mm -hmm. Scourge. Again, you know, you're not dealing with the demons as a metaphor for racism. You're dealing with racism. Like exactly. it's just, you know, and I think they're more upfront. And I think this is an episode that, that is trying to do that. But I think it becomes a bit messy because I don't think they quite know. Yeah. I also think, I mean, I mentioned Marty Noxon, um, who, you know, I love Marty Noxon. I'm a great you know, I great admire a lot of her work. Um, and I do see a lot of her fingerprints on this. But I think this is the point in the series where they haven't quite built up their angel writers, writing team. They're borrowing writers from Buffy. So mm -hmm. you'll notice in the first half of the season, a lot of overlap with writers from Buffy. And I think, and you get a lot of, you know, co-written. And I just think what you're getting is lots of voices and not a clear take on it, you know, or... or Probably, I think they're just, they're still just working things out. So they're bringing people over. You've got Greenwald still getting involved in writing it because he needs to. They're trying to produce. They've they've already gone through a process. I'm sure you've talked about this already of kind of re starting to reinvent the series. They've had to ban episodes because they were too dark. You know, yeah. I think this is that period. I think as we move past these episodes, you start seeing greater coherence in the season. Yeah. And I think they have a stronger sense of what they want this show to be. Uh, I've said before, uh, perhaps my favorite episode in all of the, the angel, the Buffy and angel series mm -hmm. uh, is in the back half of season one. And certainly mm -hmm. by the finale of season one, I feel like the show has figured itself out for the most part. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. So I think this one, but like I said, I do think there's things I like. Like, I still respect the ambition. Mm -hmm. I think there's something they're trying to do that's interesting. I was also thinking, you know, this is 1999, 2000. Like, I remember, what's it? I remember you said it was just February, February 2000. Yeah, just into 2000. You know, so you think of this vision of this alternate dimension is, you know, not quite almost 20 years before the handmaid's tale and on TV, yeah. you know, and it's, that's what it's doing. You know, it's alluding to that kind of idea. So I respect those ideas that are bubbling around in this. It's just, and, and on a, a network like the WB, right. like, you know, it's not HBO or Showtime or whatever. I think, Hey, yeah. kudos for wanting to explore these issues issues. I'll but tell you, here's it. Here's the thing that I never in my entire life expected to say, and that is I kind of wish we had gotten another, at least one more, because I feel, I, I think I read that Bai Ling, the actress, yeah. had been told she was going to be coming back for a follow-up episode. This yeah. might possibly be the first time in all of the very many times that I've watched the series that I'm like, I kind of wish we'd gotten that. <laughs> I kind of... Yeah. Uh, because yeah. I do feel like there is more, I, I wish her story could have gotten to be more than just the monster of the week kind of yeah. story. Yeah. I agree. I think it needed that. And it was, I was again struck. I'd forgotten until I rewatched it, just how unresolved the episode is. I mean, yeah. they save her and the girls in this instance, 
but and you know angel has this speech about you know not in my town and sends the men packing not in my town but yeah. really <laughs> we we never see the guys leave actually and who's to say they they won't come back anyways so yeah yeah so i you know it's a curious one where i think it need it may be if they had decided to go back to it which you're right was clearly the intention to go back to it um we could have it would have been more resolved and they could have dealt with it in a more satisfactory way but it really ends up with and she's and, and there's all kinds of other issues with her in terms of you know racially othering her she's you know and you know particularly at this point in the season where there's been very little kind of racial integration in this and mm-hmm. that, that despite being set in LA they haven't really engaged with that yet so it, there's there are problems I think if they brought her back she could have been fleshed out in a way that would have been a lot more satisfying yeah um, but at the same time I my guess is that they are you know they are finding their feet they're working out that's not working together now she may have been busy <laughs> who knows you know um but I also think they may have just realized this didn't go over very well. It's not, you know, there's there's always that response to suddenly looking at it and going, mm, it's not quite working. Yeah. Moving in a different direction. So I've mentioned Bai Ling, and uh, I will say that on previous viewings, like right out of the gate, she was one of my biggest hurdles yeah. for this because Bai Ling is one of those actresses that I used to just roll my eyes whenever she would pop up in something. Like she was yeah. in... Uh, the original Crow, the Crow film with Brandon right, yeah. Lee. Yeah. I adore that film, even with all of its problems. But man, her performance in that, I'm like, oh, can I just fast forward through this? And yeah. then, of course, she had a she did an episode of Lost that was not favorably yeah. <laughs> received by me or yeah. anybody else. Anyways, I just I have this picture or I have this uh, sort of connection with Bai Ling as an actress when she pops up in my genre fiction. And this was just in my mind, this was just another example of what I've had previously been dismissing as a really terrible actress um, being given what could potentially be interesting roles. Um, again, I've, as with the episode as a whole, I have softened considerably on my stance on Bailing because I know a lot more about her as a person. Um, and so I appreciate, I, I just appreciate her as a person and I'm willing to just sort of accept yeah. her acting gifts yeah. for what they are. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I yeah, I, I'm aware of her for the same the same texts you've mentioned. I don't really have a strong opinion about her one way or other. I always thought she was. I mean, I guess I always felt that the character is is they're trying to cash in on her style. She mm-hmm. has a certain performance style, a certain aesthetic style, um, and she's fine. She's mm-hmm. not terrible. Yeah, I you know she's fine. But I but I do think you know she is. Yeah, she is being kind of othered and she's very different. I think her performance style also lends into just really separating her from them, which of course works for that she's from a demon dimension, etc. But it doesn't quite come together. Yeah. You know, it doesn't quite work. So I, I'm sympathetic to her. I think she's an interesting person, but it it just you can see lots of things at play here that aren't quite coming together. Yeah. Around. Again, bizarrely, I wish but gotten i wish we'd gotten more of biling as jira i think i mean there's definitely potential there to explore a much more interesting narrative so as much as i was willing to coming into this um initially and i think virtually everybody else probably is willing to dismiss this episode out of hand um even if not another single thing about this episode works 
which as we've discussed is not the case. But even if this episode is completely execrable <laughs> in all other contents, um, it works a hundred percent for me because of the physical comedic stylings of David Boreanaz and oh, yeah. Alexis Denisov, possibly one of the uh, comedic highlights of the show. Absolutely. Um, uh, I mean, of course there's the dancing, uh, my dear fluffy Lord, the dancing, <laughs> um, which was so great that we not only got it at the beginning of the episode in context, but they just played a montage of it over the end credits. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I, what can we possibly say about that? What can you say except it's brilliant? <laughs> you know, it's brilliant. But I mean, if I'm being serious with my serious hat on, okay. I think what it does right on, particularly around Angel, is, I mean, there have been moments, you know, there are bits of moments of comedy. I mean, he, he's, he's, you know, he, we have elements of him, of them kind of him parodying his dark broodingness. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think what you see here is them actually showing how willing and prepared they are to really mock him and have fun with him, which is for me, one of the great, great things about Angel, the TV series is that you have this dark broody kind of Byronic hero that we're going to constantly undercut mm -hmm. and they, and, and willingness to do that, to kind of never let him take himself too seriously, even down to him, his, all the humor at his expense about his behavior at the party and Cordelia, you know, kind of just going, you know, you big kind of gaping source of despair, you know, just that sense that he is just boring and mm -hmm. all that brooding mysteriousness. No, not cool. <laughs> so I love that. I love that. And that Boreanaz is so good at it. Like yeah. he is so good at just being ridiculous as Angel. I completely agree. I mean, I, you might be aware of this. I am not aware of there being any, uh, like, behind the scenes moments like footage of them trying to film the scene or whatever. Like I, I, all I've ever seen of him doing that dance is just what's in the show. So I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall. I would love to have been on set and watch like in my mind, he just improvised that right there on the set. I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if the, the filmmakers or the crew knew what to expect going into it. I would love to imagine that he just walked out there and busted out with that. Yeah, I like that. The only thing I've ever heard is that um, is that off camera he often liked to dance around on set. That okay. he did, you know. That and and I always think there's something about actors who have to play these dark, broody characters that when the cameras are off, that they suddenly go blah, like you know, and they want to kind of let it out. And I had always read that yeah, he was. I mean, partly just nothing specific, just that he was, you know, always cracking jokes off set. But that part of it was also kind of dancing around he yeah. would you know release a lot of energy so i like the i think you like the idea he just came in and said yeah i'm gonna do this and they're like yeah we're using it it's yeah. great yeah and then i get in my imagining this is my imagining of how it goes is he's doing that and then alexis denisov says well <laughs> exactly <laughs> show that up yes and completely throws that and says no if you think that's good this is me dancing this is wesley dancing Contextually, um, or like, I mean, in terms of sort of actual character development, I think it is uh, mm -hmm. worth noting that Angel, the sort of dance sequence that we get from Angel is him in his head. He's imagining doing that and saying, oh, not yeah. going to do that. I don't dance. 
Um, yeah. Whereas Wesley is actually doing that. He is actually doing it. Wesley yeah. actually has no, or or significantly less of sort of a, an embarrassment filter <laughs> than Angel does, which is one of the charming things about Wesley. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, no, and it's, it's, it's a brilliant performance by Denisoff. And, you know, I just think he's just as having, and again, you get, it's, it's nice that they're giving them room to do this and say, actually, we're going to, because if you're going to bring Alexis Denisoff onto Angel, you're crazy not to give him the space. Yes. To show this off. And he also, in this episode, has some pretty good pratfalls. I've, that's where I was going next. There are two pratfalls that are just instant classics for me, including one that has to rival any of the old Chevy Chase I agree. pratfalls. The first one, I don't know how he did not like legitimately injure himself. When he's trying to step out of the car and misses his footing and falls flat on his face... Like he bounced off the edge of that car before he went down yeah. to the ground. And I, I just imagine that as soon as they called cut on that, they had, he limped offset and they had to go ice his leg or whatever. I know. Uh, but then the more, the hilarious one that I literally on this rewatch, I re rewound and watched like four times uh, is the whole coffee bean yeah. one <laughs> cagey little uh, brutes. Aren't they? <laughs> oh my God. Oh, uh, Wesley, I love you so much. That whole scene and the delivery of that line was just yeah. gold. Yeah, absolutely. So this is, again, so for me, this is always going to be a, 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 a sentimental favorite because you, you're giving him more time. He's able to to just be more him. He's part of the team. Like you said, he can't, finally becomes part of the team. And then you get a lot of the humor about him so desperate now to be part of the team, desperate to please. Um, that, you know, there's, he's incredibly winsome and it's very different from him on Buffy when he was just kind of annoyingly present. Mm -hmm. Suddenly we're saying, oh, we're now, we really, he has something to bring to the team. He actually does deliver, <clears throat> but he is, he's also just desperate to, to, to be used. Speaking of... Wesley bringing something to the team and being useful. Um, I think we can move on to the next episode. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to yeah. 114, I've got you under my skin. This aired originally um, February 15th, 2000. Mm -hmm. So right just barely after my 30th birthday, I get to celebrate with this episode. Uh, written by David Greenwald uh, and Janine Renshaw and directed by Robert David Price. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. What do we think about this one? This is actually probably, I think this is my favorite of the three, probably because okay. it's the most, it's a standalone, mm -hmm. but I think it's a really good standalone. Um, as a fan of TV horror and horror tropes, I think I really like the idea of them doing this possession narrative. It's also, um, you know, has some really nice nods to films like The Exorcist, very knowing nods to The Exorcist, very knowing nods to Halloween. I think the bringing those two types of narratives together in this one possession story is really nicely done. Like I just really like what they're doing with those tropes. Um, and I think they're also, and we can talk more about that, but the other thing I really like is, and it ties into the next one, it's them starting to explore notions of fatherhood and the impact yes. of fathers. And I really like that, which we've had a little bit earlier on with the somnambulists and that kind of the role, you know, and you're starting to see that as a nice theme. So I really like the way, as a standalone, how it, I just think it works for me. I'm sure it has got, you know, everything has flaws, 
but I think it works. And yet it also, you're, it, it's, they're connecting it to very nice themes. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fatherhood people. thing obviously is going to carry significantly into our next episode, but yeah. um, mm-hmm. there's a fantastic uh, setup, like a Wesley setup in this episode. When Wesley gets the line, a father doesn't have to be possessed to terrorize his children. Obviously that's an early hint at the, the, what we're going to f- learn is a tr- a troubled past, a troubled history with his own father. Uh, it's also just a chilling commentary um, and very uh, prescient, very insightful, because, of course, as it turns out, in this case, the father is not the one that's possessed. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, yeah. absolutely. I, that's why I really like that. It's a great it's just a really brilliant piece of dialogue, mm-hmm. you know, to it. And I think it's like because what I like is it hangs there. Mm-hmm. They don't don't feel the need to then reconcile it and they don't really you know you don't get details about his upbringing you know it takes a, quite a while for the details to come out and really don't get much detail until his father turns up like in season sort of, five i think it's five. i think it's all the way in season five yeah yeah so you know but i like that because it it gives you a really a strong hint of of who he is and why he is mm-hmm. how he is and I think that's really a very effective. And it also, I think, sets up a lot about his relationship with Angel yeah. um, and why Angel becomes, which will become very important later on in the season, about why he has such loyalty to Angel in the way that he will gradually move away from having loyalty to the council and to all of that past, that yeah. kind of parental past. So I, I think it's a nice moment for him. Yeah. Um so, yeah, I guess the father theme also sort of ties into... So by the end of this episode, we get the the, the Anderson father saying that, you know, he just wanted, he just wanted to keep his family together. Um, and, of course, yeah. they don't overtly call it out on screen uh, other than having the camera then look over at uh, Cordy and Wesley. But obviously i mean that parallels angel like all he wants to do i mean this is the episode that starts with him uh calling doyle or calling wesley doyle right is that was that this one it is okay okay yeah Yeah, it is this one yeah exactly and he's dealing with his own grief and trying to keep his family together and his family together yeah yeah Uh, Yeah, so i think that's there's some nice ideas there around the, the kind of the in a way without kind of on the one hand, through Wesley's comment, kind of showing the dark side of fatherhood, but also showing kind of people trying to be good fathers mm-hmm. and and showing that being a good father isn't necessarily protecting them or being able to. You know, Angel can't save Doyle. Yeah, that's it's not his fault. And the father can't save his son. But he still has his his wife and daughter, and he still has family. And I think there's something there's quite nice about the way in which fatherhood is explored there, saying you don't have to be perfect, but you you know it's the desire to take care of your family that's what's important. Yeah, um, we also get uh, this is Wesley's. I, I would say first, but that's not true. This is Wesley's latest and possibly most uh, overt opportunity to bring something to the team other than just mm-hmm. being able to read books or whatever um, in that he's the one that gets to perform the exorcism yeah. or at least try. He's the one that attempts to perform the exorcism. Um, and I did uh, again, another comedic beat in the midst of a fairly dark scene when 
they're in the church and they learn that the the priest they were going to find has died and cannot perform the exorcism. And Angel's like, no, I can't let you do it. Because, of course, Angel's coming off of having lost Doyle. Because yeah. Doyle did something that Angel was supposed to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. And Wesley just, like, tosses him the cross and says, all right, well, then you do it. <laughs> and I love Angel's response of, after he juggles it and throws it to the ground, he's like, that was vulgar. <laughs> So, exactly. I like that. Exactly. And I, I like that because on the one hand, it's a nice moment for Wesley to actually, like you said, not just bring something to the team, but stand up and say, actually, I can do this and you can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a moment, particularly if you compare him to in the previous episode where he is being much more sycophantic, you know, really desperate to please, here he's suddenly saying, no, I, I, we need to do this and I can do this. Yes, he you know, he, he shows his weaknesses or his human, his human weaknesses in the exorcism. And I, it's also one thing is quite nice is the fact that his, his inability to complete the exorcism isn't because he's a buffoon. It's actually through human weakness mm-hmm. that he is, you know, he lets his guard down and it's not, he's not ridiculed for it. It's not because he's being an idiot. It's actually because he's human. Right. Um, and it's, an, you know, he's responding emotionally and that's understandable. Um, which I think is nice for him. Um, so I believe this is, um, I think it's the first time on Angel. Angel goes into this, in my opinion at least, I think Angel the series goes into this more and better than Buffy did. But I think this is the first time on Angel that we get, not even a hint, but just absolutely on camera, definitively proven that uh, humans don't necessarily have to have souls. Um, yes. Yeah. So that was a little twist that, uh, again, going into this rewatch, I remembered, I remembered the beats of the story. I remembered that it's not the father. I remembered it was the kid. It was the son. Yeah. Um, and I remembered, uh, sort of in a fog, I hazily remembered that I thought it had been clumsy the way that had been set up. I thought I remembered them being all over the place with where they were trying to misdirect yeah. And there is one shot of the daughter looking out of the window where you're it it's timed in such a way that you're supposed to think, oh, is it the is it the daughter? Yeah. <laughs> um, but actually, no, I I think uh, on this rewatch, I was like, you know, it's a little tropey, but uh, I like the way it was pulled off. I like the way it was executed. I thought the misdirects were were yeah. clever and more or less effective. And uh, um, I did have a. I did have to struggle to get around something I don't think I had ever put together before. Uh, the actress um, who played the mother, Katie Boyer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Do you recognize her? She's familiar, but I'm not sure what from. Um, I think she's Maybe one of those. I've seen this a lot. <laughs> I, I think she's one of those actresses, actors that has done a million things. So, um, yeah. but for a while, as I was watching the episode, I was like, man, she's really familiar. Oh, that's because I've seen this episode, obviously. But I finally figured out what it was. Her first role, this is going to be, to anybody other than me, anybody with a modicum of self-respect, this would be an embarrassing admission. But I know her from the 1985 comedy classic, Just One of the Guys. Oh, wow. Which I have no idea if you've seen that or not. I don't think I have. I know the title because I used to work in a video store. Okay. Mid 1980s films like that are things I remember from my my youth, from my teen years, but I don't think I've seen it. She was the best friend in that. Right. So, 
I, yeah. as soon as I figured that out, I, I was like mind blown. Uh, and, uh, I, and I had a hard time getting around that, but, um, yeah. other than that, I thought the performances in this were great. Uh, I, sh- I meant to look up the son. The actor's name was Jesse James, which is right. interesting. <laughs> I meant to see what else he went on to do, but I did not well, do that. So I don't think I've seen him in anything else since okay. then. Um, no, I think that the actors are all really good. I think they sell it as a fam- family who are desperately trying to kind of stick together and deal with something they don't understand. Mm-hmm. And, I, and there's something nice about that. You get so used to in the world of Buffy and Angel uh, being around characters who are just, this is the world they live in. This is what they make sense of. And to suddenly have this family who've been dealing with this now for a while and not understanding it, yeah. um, understanding what's going on, whether it's the result of the possession or just him being without a soul, is you know it's just they're them struggling to try to make sense and to not want to believe that it's him even though they kind of know it's him i really like i i guess that's another thing we should mention not only the fact that the the whole episode misdirect is that um it's not the father that's possessed it's the son uh but yeah. then the twist after that where we discover that um the ethros demon once it's uh evicted from the boy's body um is still a, I mean, I, he's still a demon and he's still evil. So the show hasn't quite made that leap. I mean, it's already, it's not a leap. It's already set it up in previous episodes, but something angel becomes known for is establishing that just cause you're a demon doesn't mean you're a bad person. But, uh, the demon in this case, still evil, still monstrous, uh, but not the monster of the episode. Uh, no, which is, it's a great bait and switch. Like it really is nicely done. Um, And you're right. I I think because they set up this idea that the priest had been killed by an Ethros demon, um, you know, you've got so many allusions to the exorcist that we kind of frame where we're going, yes, demons are evil, but it, it not only does it, he's still evil, but what it makes is the revelation that actually he has been trapped inside this soulless child all the more horrifying because you're, you're you're setting up these are really you know dangerous evil demons and he's been the victim in right. this scenario he's the one who sends the kind of help me message like right. um and i really like that sense of just suddenly saying no actually this child who is simply vacant is is soulless and therefore capable of um all kinds of evil and i like the fact i mean you know, one of the things about, you know, I like the fact that while we can describe it as soulless, they don't actually say that. They say he's empty. Right. Yeah. You know, so we're not we're not essentializing it down to you're good if you have a soul and you're bad if you don't, which I think Angel constantly problematizes the simplicity even of his own condition yeah. of being the soul. So they're not there, but they're talking about the idea of someone being vacant right. and somehow a, therefore lacking any moral. Do you? And, do you remember the episode? Oh, I'm, I, my memory is shite. Um, <laughs> the, uh, it was, I think in season four, it must've been season four of Buffy. Cause she was in college, her roommate. There was an episode where she had a roommate that turned yeah. out to be, yeah. That's w- the, was that, yeah, yeah. was that, was she soulless? She was soulless and she ends up. Yes. She's a demon who is soulless, who, ends up doing something to Buffy to try to steal Buffy's soul or at least the aura of Buffy's soul okay. to conceal her where she is, something like that. Okay. It's it's like the second episode. It's the annoying roommate episode. Right. Season. Right. Okay. I, I couldn't remember. I, 
I thought I remembered her being hu- just human without a soul, but I guess she was a demon. She was revealed to be a demon. Okay. Um, because I think that was the kind of joke of the whole episode is that Buffy says she's a demon and they're saying, no, she's just annoying. But of course she really is a demon. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but it's, it's, I just think it's a nice idea here. And I think the kid plays it really well. Mm-hmm. And the kid's well asked to be kind of blankness. And that's where I like the Halloween-ness, like suddenly mm-hmm. saying this is kind of nods to Michael Myers without, without, you know, the mask and without sort of making him anonymous. He is still a kid. He is a kid. He's yeah. a person who's capable of horrible things. I, I have to say, considering the the father mentions that they had previously had and this is another joke that i'm setting up here in just a minute um their previous <laughs> life in ohio um that there had been a fire yeah uh, it's surprisingly easy like if i were that dad i wouldn't keep a gas can anywhere no. in the house certainly not where my soulless child could get his hands on it but uh yeah kid yeah. gets up in the middle of the night finds a full gas yeah. can and torches his sister and it's all easily you know the matches yeah 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 yeah, you know, you'd think uh, not wise move, let alone, you know, locking people, the ability to lock your kids in the room. You know, you pay the price for that when you, you know, <laughs> right. setting that up. So, so the, yeah. the joke I was setting up is that uh, this family uh, is apparently from or had lived is from Akron, Ohio. Right. And uh, my own soulless little boy that haunts me every day of my life uh arlo wiley the person responsible for me doing this whole damn podcast in the first place also happens (laughs) to be from akron ohio coincidence i don't think so (laughs) i don't think so excellent um anyways so yeah this episode uh deals with families and fathers and stuff and then of course we're gonna go into our final episode tonight, yeah. episode 115, The Prodigal, which is all about yeah. families and fathers. Yeah. Uh, so this originally aired on February 22nd, 2000, uh, written by the glorious Tim Minear. And I meant to look this up. I cannot remember if he's written for Angel before this. He has. He has? I did okay. look it up. And he wrote, wrote um, he's clearly the writer of Kate episodes because he writes Sense and Sensitivity. Okay. And The Somnambulist. Okay. So All right. it's being even the Kate episode. Well, it's a pretty big Kate episode. Um, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, written by Tim, uh, directed by Bruce Seth Green, who's directed probably half of every Buffy and Angel episode up to this point. Absolutely. Um, all right. So take it away. Well, yeah. Um, I think this, I think, as I said, the previous one's probably one of my favorites. I think this is probably the most is probably the best episode. And I think to me, the most significant, I think it's a really important episode. Um, part, not just because of Tim Minear, who I think is a really key voice. I mentioned earlier that at this point they're fine. They're struggling to find the kind of key angel writers. They're mm-hmm. borrowing lots of, except for Tim Minear, who I think as you see with these, his buildup, he is starting to become the kind of in-house angel writer. Yeah. Um, he doesn't come from Buffy. He's never written for Buffy. He is, and, and he's got that angel thing. Every single time I read that or hear someone say that, I it still blows me away. Like even as you said that, I was like, "Is that true? Is this really? Yeah. Did he never do?" But okay, yeah. No, he didn't. And I think he, and I think that's really important. Because, not because it's not remotely to diss Buffy, but I just think he walks in and kind of gets Angel for what it is or what it can be. Right. 
Um, and I think he really comes in with that fresh perspective, although in loads of interviews, he talks about, you know, being able to benefit from all the kind of um, institutional knowledge that all the other writers bring so they ensure that there's a connection right. to the Buffy and the into that to that world, that universe. But I think he's really important. I really think this one's great because it ties into this notion of family and fatherhood. I think it's a really important one, not only because we, we, we get more backstory of Angel, which is obviously a really important thread in the TV series, that we start seeing more of his past from his perspective, or at least showing the shades of gray of his past. It isn't as simplistic as um, it was presented on Buffy um, in the sense of, good, you know, evil, curse, good, you know, which I think I think we start seeing a lot more complicated shades yeah. of gray to his history. Um, but I also think what, what this does episode is really f- important for this season because the way in which it is using Angel's past to reflect on Kate's present uh-huh. I think is really, you know, you're setting up these parallels between their respective relationships to their fathers is something we'll see in later episodes this season with Faith again, where we again get Angel's past being used to kind of reflect on something in the present. I think there's something really interesting about his past and these these women who have their, their own really complicate, complicated lives. So I really I think that's a real strength to um, Prodigal. I like that it's a, it's Kate's attempt to come to terms with the supernatural world that she's been introduced to, and oh. I and I love the the Mulder Mulder and Scully kind. <laughs> to it that we're we're sensing that she is trying to get a sense uh, to get her head around this world um and you know i just think there's a lot and and the flashbacks for me are really are really important storytelling device that um i always think of tim wynear as mr flashback because he does a lot of flashback episodes And I think, you know, he, he, he you know, I don't know if I'm saying it's just his idea. I suspect that was always written into the season that you would have that. But I think, he, you know, he uses them well to bring out some interesting kind of layers to Angel's past. Yeah. So um, initially I was going to talk about like my first train of thought was that the the sort of parallels that are being drawn between the two fathers. Mm-hmm in the story between do we ever does does liam's father ever get a name i don't think he does okay so I'm not, at least off the top of my head i'm not i can't think of one he is just father <laughs> also did we know that his name was liam before this i thought we did i think we may know that from and i don't know if we get that in the flashbacks in buffy okay. in becoming part one and two we might get that his name is okay. liam from there might well couldn't stress that for anyone playing along at home who missed this, uh, Angel's real name is Liam. Um, yeah. And his father's real name is Father, I guess. But um, yeah. <laughs> so anyways, yeah, between Father and Trevor uh, yeah. Lockley, uh, like my first sort of path I went down was that um, the parallels there, are it's clearly set up, but I thought maybe it was a little bit muddled. And the reason I was thinking that is because I was focused on sort of the 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 results of those stories, like how those stories play out and finish up. Meaning that, um, you know, obviously Liam's father died in a very different way under completely different circumstances. Um, well, not completely different, but 
their death their deaths were were uh, sort of the opposite ends of the spectrum, I guess. But um, as soon as I move past the surface stuff, there I realized that the parallels are pretty spot on. Um, both fathers were. I mean, you could argue that one of them is much worse than the other, but both fathers were very strict and controlling and to some degree sort of disapproving or whatever of their children. Um, both fathers are killed by vampires. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, initially I just wanted to sort of uh, pick nits with that parallel, uh, but I think I have to step back from that. I think it's pretty well handled. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think it's more like it's the part like you're right, they're complete. They are very different in many respects. But I think for me, if you focus on angels reflecting on his relationship to the past, I mean, they never say where those flashbacks are. Like, they're not like it's him remembering. We don't get the right. shot of Angel looking out the window and then right. fuzzy screen going to him. <laughs> you know, they're just parallel. But, you know, when you think of this show is from his perspective, you're thinking about this. You know, the whole point of those flashbacks is not just to see he had a horrible father and, you know, he had a horrible father, a horrible relationship with his father, but also that sense of Starla's line about, you know, who we were shapes who we are. And I think there's something really important about this idea that that the are these relationships, how whatever they're like, will shape who we are and how we deal with them. And I think that's for me really important for Kate because her father is you're right, possibly not as kind of horrible as as Liam's father, but you know, he is cold, he is distant, he has clearly never given Kate the encouragement or support that she needs from him. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, you do get a real sense that she is looking, you know, she has become a police officer because of him. She is looking to, to fall in his footsteps, but she's not getting that satisfaction. So she's doubtful when, you know, she's sort of pleased when she, he seems to be coming to, um, check up on her, but he's not really. And then when he does arrange to have lunch with her, he's actually not, he's trying to get information. And there's something kind of sad, there's something sad about that. So I think there's some, there's those parallels, but it becomes about how does she deal with with how that relationship was never resolved and how does she move forward? And I think it's setting up her story mm-hmm. uh, in some respects because this is something she's going to keep struggling with, the mm-hmm. sense of... And which she will now locate into demons bad, you know, and, you know, demons evil, demons bad. Um, what was she calls them? An evil, evil thing. Yeah. You know, the evil, evil things. You know, she will locate all of that in there because she's trying to de- process that guilt, but yeah. it, that grief. But it is that sense of, you know, who we were shapes who we are. And these relationships, no matter whether they're resolved or not, you've got to somehow find some reconciliation. Otherwise, they will haunt you. And I, I like that parallel there. Uh, another um, sort of flip between the two I was going to say mirroring, which I guess is a, I guess that's accurate. Another mirroring of that, of that is that, um, Liam never like Liam reacted to his father's abuse and, and dismissal or whatever, uh, by deliberately leaning into the bad boy thing and not care, like going out of his way to not care what his father thought, or, or at least on the surface. 
Whereas Kate responds the opposite way and she pushes back. Like she just redoubles her efforts to earn her father's absolutely love and trust. Um, So you already mentioned Darla. You already mentioned Julie Benz, uh, her first appearance on the show, far from her last, she will become, she is a very important character and becomes a very important character on the series. Um, and I had forgotten, uh, so, so you mentioned her line where she, she talks about how, you know, what we were informs who we are referring to vampires. I had forgotten, uh, how early this show had doubled down. And since this show is airing concurrently with Buffy season four, um, I had just forgotten how early that happened because as people have heard me discuss ad nauseum uh, in my uh, Buffy episodes. Uh, I struggled throughout the entire course of that series with how the show <laughs> uh, portrayed Spike in particular, but like, you know, vampires and uh, souls versus soullessness and all that. Um, yeah. And so here we have Darla who in some, in, in many respects is one of the, sort of in terms of the series progenitors of our, the the vampires that we know. Um, She is also saying something that Spike has, I can't remember if he's said it at this point in chronologically or not, but Spike eventually goes on to talk about how, you know, vampires can love. Yeah. Actually, is that a Darla line? I think she is. We we can love just not wisely. You're, you're right. I think it is a Darla line. Okay. So, so anyways, Darla's always said that I was just surprised. I, I wasn't expecting that yeah. to come this early, but, um, yeah, I think they're kind of, they're, yeah, you're right. They kind of move in that direction very quickly. That sense of exploring that the, the lines between their human selves mm-hmm. and their vampire selves are not as far away as, uh, we would like to make them appear. She also has a very, uh, significant moment at the in the final flashback after Liam after Angel excuse me Angelus damn it there are too many characters in one person <laughs> after Angelus uh has killed his family yes. um which i believe we see multiple times across the series and sometimes it's a little more graphic and horrible yeah. this time we just see his dead sister in the doorway or whatever anyways after that's all done uh Darla gives him the whole speech about um you know, Angelus is talking about how I'll never be able to, he'll never be disappointed in me again or something. And she was like, he'll also never be able to approve of you or whatever. And she, I I had forgotten that whole thing, um, which struck me as odd considering I always think of Angelus as the one who's just like completely in control and knows exactly what he's doing and what's going on. And he was still baby Angelus in that scene. And, and Darla got to sort of school him a little bit there. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I'd forgotten, you know, his birthing scene as he crawls out of his grave, Mm. you sort of forget that moment where it really is a, but he is baby Angelus because it's that moment when he sees the person and this, I was it the grave digger or security person. And he, 
suddenly turns back and looks to her for encouragement. Yeah. You know what to do. You go. She's the little fledgling. She's pushing out of the nest. Yeah. And it's a really interesting moment because you're right. You sort of think of him as leaping. And he le- he does adapt pretty quickly because he goes from that hesitancy to murdering his entire family and what sounds like most of the town. Yeah. Uh, you know, so he adapts quickly. But there is something about seeing that she is schooling him in the being the vampire. He will come. I also wonder if that, if her uh, lesson there to him at the end, if that helps inform the particular brand of evil that he embraces, because one of the things that made Angelus so horrible was that he didn't just kill people. Like he didn't just feed off townsfolk or whatever. He like mentally tortured people. He mentally and emotionally tortured people in the process. And, um, I just feel like her pointing out the sort of the emotional stakes that were tied up in that, if that started him down the road of figuring out that, you know, there's more to this than just killing somebody. Yeah, absolutely. And well, also, because what was struck me this time is, is just how different Angelus is from Liam, because Liam, of course, is all, you know, in his bid to rebel against his father, he is just all instinct. It's all just drinking and sex, and that's all he's doing. It's just, it's all, you know, emotion, Hmm. and he's just out there doing whatever. And of course, Angelus, it is all about power and control. So Liam is about no control, and it's like, you know, I think Darla is about putting him on the path to control it's about control and power and a very different so i think there is something to say it isn't just enough to kill people and mm-hmm. go around flailing it is about what do you you know what are you going to get out of this because you know he initially wants to he kills his father but there's no satisfaction in just killing his father right you know and i think he you know you sort of think that's probably the thing that haunts him is the fact that actually it's not enough yeah he wasted that opportunity. <laughs> he probably regrets that he yeah, well, just killed his dad. Yeah. Um, exactly. As Nikki Stafford pointed out in her book, in Once Bitten, uh, she makes some comment to the effect, the effect of fathers are always bad guys in the Whedonverse. And um, I feel like that might be true. I mean, I, fathers don't really get any kind of positive spin. <laughs> On the show. No, they don't. And I think that is true. I, I think here, you know, these episodes, you know, at the best, you're negligent, mm-hmm. uh, cold, distant, and, you know, and this and this ties into this idea that we, what becomes much more powerful are these um, pseudo father figures, right. you know, people who are trying to, you know, hold together their chosen families. But it becomes much more about what I like about that, because you can argue Wesley and Angel are being positioned in these episodes as in this father son relationship. But it also becomes about Angel Wesley showing that he can be an equal. One of the things I liked about the previous episode um, is the line about when the demon taunts Wesley and Angel about the fact that Wesley is going to kill Angel. Mm-hmm. And then Wesley, when Wesley sort of apologizes, Angel says, I know you're not going to kill me but you're prepared to, and that's good. Yeah. And I think there, there's a sense of them recognizing each other as equals, even if there is a, an element of, of, you know, mentoring going on there. Yeah. It, they're, they're, you know, what Angel wants is someone who is a, an equal, not who's just going to do whatever he says and follow in his footsteps. Yeah. So this episode had a great moment that I, I referenced, I think maybe in the last 
uh, discussion, the last podcast episode. I knew it was coming, but I forgot the details of it, the context of it. And maybe I'm conflating it with something that happens later. But um, what I was thinking about was the scene where he's at the door. He's at Trevor's door. Yes. Um, wanting to be invited in so he can save him. And he like tells that vampire, he's like, he dies, his soul leaves the body. And I'm in there and I will kill yeah. you. Um, I, what I remembered, what I was remembering as I talked about this previously was I remembered it being a scene with Kate. Mm-hmm where he had to get into the room with Kate um, and somehow managed to do it even though she hadn't died. And I'm completely, I might be completely making this up now. No, you're not making that up. That's season two. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's coming. I forgot that Kate makes it to season two. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I thought we were. In fact, that's a really important thing because they don't, they, they reference the him and him not being able to, yeah, him needing to be invited a few times, but they don't do it all the time, very often. But they do it a couple of ones, a couple of times. And I think there's a nice correlation between this scene with Kate's dad and the the bit in Kate, and uh, you know okay. you'll you'll get to that in in due course. But it's um, is it season two, or am I? Is it, hold on, just double check my. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes, it is season two. I completely friend. forgotten. I thought we were losing her pretty soon. I no, I have. No, uh, no. Is that from there? Yeah. So I just had to double check. I don't remember. Okay. I can't off the top of my head say which episode, but it is a really important one where he um, has that. You know, he's he is able to get in, and they have a discussion about the fact that she hadn't invited him in. Okay. Okay. I, maybe some little bit of that is coming back, but okay. I, I I'm glad I didn't completely make that up. Even as I was saying it to you, I was like, yeah, this is not real. I I just totally made this up. <laughs> No, it's a it's a really nice moment, and it's again part of one of those moments which you know the series doesn't go you know they have the powers that be you know the PTBs, but there's there every once in a while there's a moment where it's a nod to something a little more abstract in terms of there being unanswerables out there, you know they don't know exactly why, but somehow Mir- miracle snow in Sunnydale. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also, you know, nice correlations to all of these things are all connected. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay. What else did we get in this or, or, or any of these? Is there anything else that we need to talk about? Uh, Probably. I was trying to think, I feel like there was something else with this one. Um, uh, I'm drawing a blank on this one. I think there was something else I was going to mention. I've forgotten it, but, uh, what, um, I'm trying to remember what, uh, I, for some reason, I took precious little notes, precious few notes on this episode. I'm trying to remember what um, Wesley and Cordelia's roles were in this particular episode. Yeah, they're kind of more background investigating. They're doing, oh, this is, oh, this is actually Wesley is science Wesley, where he's investigating. This is all to do with the drug and the, the demon adrenal glands. So right, right. There's some nice little science moments of with him, him in his lab the, coat. Yeah. In his lab coat. <laughs> And I love that he has a lab coat. I, I yeah, I I was like, where'd the lab coat come from, Wesley? That's that's yeah. precious. Um, it, exactly. So they're kind of definitely the kind of home, the background home team, trying to to sort the mystery of the of the demons in the adrenal gland. I mean, some nice ideas around again, uh, again, the, equating you know 
or moving away from metaphor to just demons exist in this world. You know, they're drug dealers. You've got demons on yeah. drugs. You know, it just becomes much more matter of fact in this world. Actually, yeah, there are layers of life. There are layers of, of existence. But fundamentally, you know, they're just, just creatures out there doing the same kind of crazy stuff that humans do. Good for good and bad. Um, and I, I always like that. I, I know this is the... This has always been the bigger picture. This has always been just the truth of the two shows. But every once in a while, it just strikes me that, yeah, Buffy really was the the show full of metaphors, like high school as hell. And then you come to Los Angeles, and it's like, no, there's no more. It's it's just demons are drug dealers. Yeah. Or, or, you know, lawyers are evil. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think it becomes much more about a concrete sense of evil. Because I think it is about that. Like, it is about crime. It becomes about racism. It becomes about corporate evil. Like, it just, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's you're in the big world. And the, the, the demons you're facing, the figurative demons, are now just real, genuine, big issues and not necessarily um, emotional issues that Buffy explored really well by using metaphor to talk about growing up. Yeah. You know, they've grown. <laughs> Now they're having to deal. Um, so I think they're so, yeah, so it's a, they're, they're a nice little trio of episodes for this series. Yes. My, my soulless, uh, my soulless boy, <laughs> the, the albatross around my neck, Arlo, <laughs> when he put these episode schedules together, I, I, it pains me. It burns me inside like a cross on the skin of a vampire to give him credit, but he really paired stuff together pretty well. So, yeah, I do think that these ones work really well. Um, and I think it sets you up. I think looking at the next series of episodes, I think, yeah, I think you're building up now. I think you're going to see, um, some nice moving into the bigger, you know, arcs and narratives. Of the series are going to be really important to the series. So I think lots of fun to come. Yes, we're getting, we're, we're so close. We're getting so close to some genuinely great episodes coming up. Very excited. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, was there anything else about any of these three? No, I suppose the only thing, actually, I remember what it was I wanted to say before. was I suppose okay. the other thing is, you mentioned Darla, and I'd sort of forgotten, because, you know, when you've watched these as much, all of this, you sort of forget what it's like to bring Darla back. Yeah, because um, she's dead at this we, point. She's dead and has been for a very long time with yeah. Buffy. And I know she turns up in the Buffy flashback episodes um, around Becoming. Mm-hmm. But that's it. And to bring her back here in a flashback um, and to set up the word that she is going to be an important presence, mm-hmm. I think is really good. And I, and I love bringing Darla back and that voice that she brings into this show. I mean, I think it's, it's nice. It's a nice moment to have her back and she will be a big part of season two. Um, and, and in whatever format. And, and again, I was thinking about Tim, my because I think he writes a lot of the episodes with her. So I think there's some real nice connections there um, in terms of them, certain people coming together on this episode that will be really important in terms of how they play out things on season two. Yeah. So it's nice. So I, it's great to get her back. And I, like I said, because that you sort of watch these things, you sort of forget. I, I sort of, when I watched it again, I went, Oh God, I remember the excitement of seeing Darla again. And so I'm going, it's Darla, <laughs> you know, and getting a little bit more of that story about her, how she spotted him, you know, and yeah. kind of 
picked him out of the crowd. Which I know, I know some of the flashbacks that we got in this were scenes from previous, like I think Becoming from yeah. Buffy. I, I think some of that stuff, we had already actually seen that footage, but a lot of it was new. Like, I don't yeah. think we'd seen Darla noticing, noticing Liam before. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's you get the transformation bit where she bites him and, you know, that kind of initiating. Christina Hendricks. That was it. Yeah. I can't believe in however many times I've watched this, I don't think, unless I've forgotten, I don't think I ever clued into the fact that the barmaid is yeah. Yo Safbridge. Yeah. Which yeah. is a reference no, that please. some, I know some people listening to this show have no idea what the hell I'm talking about, but... <laughs> Uh, yeah. I've forgotten. Yeah, I've forgotten as well. I spotted her and thought, oh, I mean, that's one of the things that's great about going back to see these people sort of popping up um, quite early on. So, yeah, that was a nice surprise because I've that. We also didn't mention in the previous episode uh, Sean Gunn, Sean uh, Gunn. played. Um, who did he play? Uh, was it the previous one? No, I must have. Been, I think it was she. It was in she. Uh, Sean Gunn played. Um, I guess he's only named in the script. He wasn't named on camera. But the Mars, the guy that ran the the salon or whatever, the spa. Oh, of course, yes, yes. Um, and yeah. he'd also he had also played a character in Hero. Yeah. So this is his yeah. second time. You're right. Yes, it's the second time, I, and he's great. I really like him in um, she. I mean, it's, it's a bizarre. It is. Little performance but it's a really nice little comic performance yeah. which i enjoy um yeah so there's some nice there are always nice little bits of flavor in these episodes i know um, previously bit, previously we got baby hawkeye which you and i didn't yeah, get to talk about but no but you've had baby hawkeye you know up there which is great um the other little bit of flavor i really like from she is the kind of wonderfully random moment of angel um, going through the museum and decide, and in order to conceal the fact that he's following her, giving his little narration about the, the Monet painting and Baudelaire, which I just love that bit of little performance and that writing of that sequence. Yeah. Did you notice right after that scene, it cut to um, Cordy walking through Angel's apartment or whatever, his, his basement. And there was, I looked it up as soon as I noticed it. And now I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, I believe it was Raphael's Madonna, Madonna right. in the field or something like that. Okay. He, he just had that leaning yeah. against the wall as Cordelia walked by. So obviously, yeah. obviously angel likes art. He does. Well, he's interesting the way they kind of play with his, um, his classical tastes. You know, in the sense he likes art. At some point, he's reading Sartre's uh, Nausea. And I can never remember because I always want to look up and go, which episode is it that he does? But at some point or other, he's reading that. Um, obviously, in season three, he'll talk about the ballet. And mm -hmm. I would, for some reason, that moment in the museum made me think of the ballet when he was talking about how he cried like a baby. And I was evil. Yeah. <laughs> 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 You know, um, so there's something kind of interesting about that he has this, he does have a kind of classical artistic taste. Well, and he himself is an artist. They, yeah, they never, I, I don't remember that they ever really highlight that. It's just the fact that he's constantly, 
you know, you'll get episodes where Cordy tries to sketch what she sees in a vision, or I think maybe Wesley even tries to draw something at one point. Yeah. And Angel just whips up these fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, stunning pencil drawings. Yeah, I know. I've always wanted to know who did them, actually. Um, and I don't know who actually does, does the drawings for Angel. Maybe it's Briannis. I don't necessarily think well, so. <laughs> no, I. Who knows? I, I don't imagine that, but maybe. I will have to look that up. But uh, it's a nice, it's a nice touch that he had, there is something about him having that kind of classical eye. Yeah. Um, okay. Excellent. I, th I think we did it. So. Thank um, you. Stacy, thank you so much for joining thank me you. from the bright, sunny, faraway world that you're in. I see you're bathed in sunlight. You've got all your vampire books behind you, and they're bathed in sunlight. So I, exactly. I assume well, your glass is necro tempered. Yeah, of course. Of yeah, course. You know, okay. The best of you know Wolfram and Hart. Right. <laughs> yes. Another <laughs> reference. I, I also realized that because I sort of I really just kind of skipped over my usual intro at the top. I never give a spoiler warning. Seriously, <laughs> anybody who listens to this show at this point, you shouldn't need a spoiler warning. But oh, by the way, spoilers. <laughs> so be yeah. be retroactively warned about that. Uh, anyways, thank you for joining me. And uh, I will have you back. Is there anything that you want to share with the listeners? Have you... a good summer. Stay safe. Uh, <laughs> be good. There you go. Uh, nothing much. Um, I think last yeah. time we talked about, or at least mentioned, uh, the website Monstrum. Yes, um, I sure well remembered. Yeah, so that's out. I, I co-edited an issue of Monstrum on Supernatural for the Supernatural fans. And if you really want me, I, I'll, I'll twist my arm and plug a book. Uh, Lorna Jowett and I just um, co-edited a book on global TV horror, which Excellent. came out um, literally like a month and a half ago. Excellent. So if anyone's interested in you know just in reading some really good stuff about south american horror tv and danish and iranian along why alongside british and american it's really good it's right really on. great well uh i for this show as with all of my podcasts i somewhat futilely make uh show notes which include typically links to stuff that we talk about in the episode i always put um, links to the books that my guests have written or contributed to. So I've already got links for all the books we mentioned previously. Yeah. Once we're off mic, I'll get the information on that new book from you and that'll be in the links as well. Thank you. So, thank you. Great. Um, anyways. Yeah. So everybody at home, thank you for listening. Uh, please check out the show notes and check out all those books and links uh, for <laughs> Stacy's work that I'm going to include. Um, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com. Uh, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, um, maybe on Spotify someday if I ever get around to doing it. I know it's super easy. I just haven't done it. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you have questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to join the conversation, you can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at conswithdead or reach out to us on Facebook at Conversations with Dead People. Uh, next week, post-production supervisor and Hollywood man about town, Michael Holland, uh, is back to help me look over. Surprise, Michael. I don't know if you remember that. If you're listening, you're back next week. Uh, <laughs> he's coming back to help me look over episodes 116, The Ring, and 117, Eternity. Uh, until then, remember, if nothing we do matters, then all that matters is what we do. I've got you under my skin. I've got you deep in the heart of me.
so deep in my heart that you're really a part of me. I've got you under my skin. I tried so not to give in.